he had a loft on 25th Street and 7th Avenue. And it was a pretty big loft. And so he, like a corner of the loft, he had a desk there and a chair and whatever. And he said, that's for you. That's for you to sit down every day and write. And that's how you become a writer. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am so delighted to welcome Jaime Manrique to the My Fourth Act podcast. Jaime is a Colombian-born novelist, poet, essayist, and translator who writes in both English and Spanish. Jaime's work has been translated into 15 languages. Among his publications in English are the novels Latin Moon in Manhattan, Twilight at the Equator, Our Lives at the Rivers, and Cervantes Street. Jaime has also published a delicious memoir called Eminent Maricones, Arenas, Lorca, Puig, and Me. Jaime has been hailed as the most accomplished gay Latino writer of his generation. His honors include Colombia's National Poetry Award, the 2007 International Latino Book Award, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and the Publishing Triangle's Bill Whitehead Award for Lifetime Achievement. He's a distinguished lecturer in the Department of Modern and Classical Languages and Literatures at the City College of New York. And I'm just scratching the surface. All of this to say you're an incredibly wonderful writer, ridiculously accomplished. And I'm so happy we get to speak, Jaime. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful to see you again. It's been a while. Yes, so to just acknowledge, you know, we lived for a while in the same neighborhood in Manhattan in the West Village, and we crossed paths and we occasionally hung out, which I'm really grateful. Now, I just read this introduction. You just recently turned 73 years old. So what's it like to listen to somebody like me read all of these accomplishments? Well, really facts. I mean, I've I've done those things, or I am some of those things. I mean, some things are like, I remember when I, the, the Washington Post had that article saying that I was the most accomplished Latino right. writer of the, my generation. I thought it was funny because I thought, how many Latino writers are there in my generation? And then I thought, two. So to be the most accomplished <laughs> of two, it's not such a big deal. But now, now there are more. So I don't know if I'm still the most accomplished writer of my generation, but Well, there are other generations that follow you now, right? I'm really curious because you grew up in Colombia. You came as, as I understand, as a teenager to to Florida with your mom. When you were a young boy or teenager, what was your sense of what you wanted to do or be when you grew up? When I was a boy, I wanted to be a veterinarian because I loved animals. Uh Uh-huh. So I thought, oh, I'll be happy, you know, like uh, working with animals and that kind of stuff. Then a little later, I think a few years later, like when I was 12 or 13, one of my teachers in school 
sort of said, oh, Jaime, you're like, you're, you're a good writer or something. Or, you know, he took an interest in me. And, and then I thought, I said, you, you, you might become a writer someday. And then I thought I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know really what it meant. I mean, I read a lot, but, you know, being a journalist was being a writer, which it is, but it's not, that's yeah. not what I wanted to do. I wanted to write stories and poems and, and not, not articles or, you know. So that's what I wanted to be when I was, when I was a boy, yeah. What strikes me as you're talking is, because you're also a teacher now at the university level, yeah. that the power of a teacher saying something like that, which uh, can inspire ideas and can be hopeful and can get the mind going, right? I mean, that's the beauty of a teacher saying something like that to you, isn't it? Um, yes, yes. The, the encouragement that young people get, it's, it's a... When taken seriously as, as young people, uh, it makes a, a difference, a big difference. And that's why I try to take uh, very seriously my students and you know their struggles and what they're trying to do and they do right. And because I know that, that for me, I'm you know like done it all like in that sense that they're beginning. And so any encouragement I can give them might be really truly valuable for them and inspire them to you know to keep going and growing. That's, one of, that's probably the most wonderful part about teaching. Because in my podcast, we play with a metaphor, different acts. Mm. And life is not tidily separated into acts. It all often overlaps. But when I first met you in Manhattan, I, I also met Bill Sullivan, who was yes. your longtime partner. And yes. you had been together, as I understand it, for over three decades even though I know you did some research for this conversation. And what, what made me chuckle, which I didn't know, it said you both met in Julius's, which is yes. this famous old gay bar in Manhattan. It was the 4th of July. The 4th of July. Wow. <laughs> How beautiful is that? What do you remember of your first meeting with Bill Sullivan? I was reading a, a book of essays by Santayana. That was my way of, you know, attracting an intellectual boyfriend. I sat there reading, and I was, I, you know, and then he, he approached me and said, I've never seen anybody reading a book in a, in a bar. And I said, well, that's what I do here, you know. And that's when we started chatting then. It was a good way to, to catch the attention of, like, intelligent boyfriends, you know. They would approach, what, what are you reading, you know, and... Usually didn't matter what I was reading, was just trying to, it's my ploy to look, to look intellectual. I remember being in Fire Island in the Pines and, and walking down the beach, and a fellow was passing me walking on the beach reading mm -hmm. Shakespeare. Now, that, you know, this is not the place to read Shakespeare, no. but we, we struck up a conversation and we had a lovely um, summer affair, and oh, him reading Shakespeare sparked it. So All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what interests me as a fellow gay man, you had a long relationship with Bill because relationships go through stages and they mm -hmm. evolve and they change. Yeah. If you were to talk about maybe your, the depth of your connection with Bill, but also how the relationship changed over time. Well, I would think it's probably the defining relationship in my life with a man because we were together for so long. Although the last 10 years of his life, we didn't live together all the time. When I moved down to the village, he stayed in midtown and then he moved to Hudson. But I wouldn't go to Hudson every summer, 
spend the summers there. And often I went for uh, weekends to Hudson. So, so, and the last year of his life, I lived with him because I knew he was ill. And he said, why don't you come here and, and stay here? Because, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. So maybe we want to stay, spend some time together. And I always say that, you know, love is what remains. But the end, that's love, you know. However you stay together or why you stay together. And the rest is just you not know, conversation, really, you know. But it was um, it was it was difficult in many ways, extremely difficult, because he was a difficult person. I'm told that I am too, so I believe it. And <laughs> so there was two two temperaments clashing often. And but he taught me a lot. Bill was seven years older than me, and he knew tons of things that he didn't know. You know, he had had an Ivy League education. You know, I studied at a public university in Florida, and he had been in the, from the time he was little, uh, he had really met, uh, you know, famous painters and people in the arts, whereas, you know, that came for me later. So he was much more sophisticated than I was. In the beginning, it was like learning about things that I did want to learn about New York. You know, how do you become an artist in New York? Mm-hmm. And what does an artist do to survive in New York? Yeah. And, and he took me very seriously when we started living together. You know, he had a loft on 25th Street and 7th Avenue. And it was a pretty big loft. And so he, like a corner of the loft, he had a desk there and a chair and whatever. And he said, that's for you. That's for you to sit down every day and write. And that's how you become a writer. And I thought, oh, how wonderful. You know, like, like I had this corner where I had a desk and my own desk. And I mean, I did have that in my mother's house, but this was like New York, in, you know, the big thing and with, surrounded by artists. Started to do it like more systematically, writing as much as I could, whenever I could and not. He taught me, I think, that the, to have uh, discipline, to be disciplined. Yeah. How wonderful to have a partner who celebrates the artist in you and it supports you and that's just a beautiful story yes that's a beautiful story and it was like that till the very end i mean like i i I published in this country two books of poems and both were published by bill you know because i had poems and he said said, please you know like why don't publish a book you know like whatever i said oh you know i don't know you know it's it's a lot of work to put these two poems together so finally he sort of like you know like maybe get give him a bunch of poems and then he uh, he had started just his press, uh, a painted leaf press. Yeah, I think that was the second book he published, my book of poems. And then he later he published another one. So the two books of poems that poetry are published in this country, he published them. Yes, yeah. so, um, because he really believed in me as a poet. Painted leaf press, which is one of the many things I admire about Bill, is published some really beautiful work. Yeah, amazing queer writers. The fact that Bill, who was essentially a visual artist, mm-hmm. created a platform for writers is just... Yeah, he loved poetry. He really did love poetry. And so, loved, yeah. Yeah, he loved being around poets. And you know. So when his father died, uh, you know, like he inherited the house and whatever. So then he sold everything and he decided, I'm going to start the press and publish poetry. Of course, in a few years, he was totally broke. His poetry doesn't sell, you know. So, but he was very happy, you know, like some of those books won awards and and stuff like that. You mentioned being in his circle as a a younger man and and a writer who was celebrated by his partner and and meeting other famous people. And 
One little tidbit that I love about you and love for you to talk about is you you met the really well-known film critic Pauline Kael. Right? Oh, yes. I think of you as having the gift of friendship. So you became friends with Pauline Kael and uh, you've written about her and that relationship. What's And she was just a, a really a fixture in Manhattan. What was it like for you to be friends with this woman who was a celebrated film critic? It was one of the main chapters of my life. You know, I met Pauline before I met Bill. Uh, and we remained in touch. I would call her when I was in New York. And she said, oh, yeah, remember you. You have that Afro and, you know, you were wearing that red uh, shirt and, and stuff like that. And the first day that I was in New York, the second day, I called the New Yorker and I said, may I speak with Pauline Kale? And then and she said, oh, who may I say is calling? And I said, we're, we're friends. And then the... The person at the reception said, oh, he must be that uh, French director who uh, was here the other day. I said, I'm that one. So <laughs> and so I started talking. And she remembered me from the letters that we had exchanged. And then uh, she said, well, meet me at Delgonquin. I had no idea what Delgonquin was. I had heard the name, but I wasn't really sure that, you know, something about Dorothy Parker or the Indians, Delgonquin Indians. But I found out where Delgonquin was, and I went there. And but they wouldn't let me in because I didn't was not wearing a, a jacket. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you had to wear a jacket and a tie. And you know, and I was wearing sneakers or whatever, you know. And I had to wait for Pauline. And then when she when she arrived, she said, "Oh, bring him a jacket." And so they brought me a jacket immediately. And I put the jacket on, and I, we could go in. And so you know, I think she, um, I think she was amused by me in many ways, you know. And I adored it. I loved her work so much. And she loved uh, young people, you know, she loved young yeah. people. She didn't like being around old people, you know, it's just yeah. like, you know, so. Well, well, somebody else who adores you, I wanted to just mention this because this is a woman who first told me about you as a brilliant writer, Jessica Hagedorn. Oh, yeah. And I had taken a writing workshop with her in the early 90s in Manhattan. And uh, she said, oh, there's this writer named Jaime Manrique. He published this novel Latin Moon in Manhattan, and I think you would really like it. And of course, I adored that book. Jessica is my really good friend. I mean, she's she's a neighbor, and we see each other often. And, you know, it's been a friendship now many, many years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that, because that novel had a gay protagonist, I'm sure the assumption was that this is semi-autobiographical, and it's, it's Jaime novel form, and you wrote a wonderful novel called Twilight at the Equator, and then you <laughs> wrote this delicious short memoir called uh, Maricones, where you place yourself in the orbit with some other really famous gay Latino writers. Manuel Puig, for listeners who don't know him, he wrote Kiss of the Spider Woman. Rinaldo Arenas, who was a Cuban-born exile writer for Night Falls, is his best-known book in the United States. Federico Garcia Lorca, obviously of a different generation. You probably know this. And me. And you, exactly. You were joking the other day when we spoke. You said, oh, yeah, that, that was my second act. I was the gay Latino writer. And I think a lot of your identity or what people wrote about you was that because you wrote about it. Be, we're friends with some of these writers that are, first of all, great writers, but, but iconic and beloved for their writing. 
Not Lorca, he died long before I was Lorca did, yes. <laughs> we know you're 73, we're, you're not that we're old. friends now, we talk, I talk to his ghost <laughs> and we're friends. Communicate with Lorca telepathically. Yes, yes. Yes, understood. But Manuel Puig, who you also became friends with, in my mind, similarly to Pauline Kael in a way, right? He was an older, established writer. Yeah. took a shining to you and... What stands out for you about Manuel Puig? Well, Manuel was very democratic, and uh, he was invited to teach at Columbia University in the MFA program. And he said, well, I will teach, but I don't, uh, you know, I I, I will choose the students. And uh, they they write to me and show me what they've written, and I'll decide whether they can study with me or not. And they don't have to enroll in the university. I don't want any bureaucracy. I just... So I read that. I was in Macondo bookstore and I saw that there was this thing saying Manuel Puig opens a workshop to anybody who writes in the city and wants to study with him. So I took him the, the chapter of um, the the first novel I had written. And then he uh, the next day he called me and he said, oh yeah, I like your writing because it, you write under the from your epidermis. And so I thought, oh, what's a nice thing to say. You know, I had, it never occurred to me. I was briefly in the workshop and that's how we became friends. Now, Reynaldo Arenas my died neighbor. in 1990. So he died young. It was the time of AIDS. He became more celebrated almost posthumously before Night Falls came out afterwards. How did you come across Reynaldo Arenas? We had the same agent, mm-hmm. Thomas Colchi. And, you know, I've heard about Reynaldo, of course, because he was famous in Latin America, more or less. He was well known, and I said, and especially as a dissident. And, and so my agent offered to introduce me to him. And I said, sure, I'd love to meet him. And he lived around the corner from where I live with Bill on 43rd Street. And we live on 43rd Street and 8th Avenue. Yeah. Reynaldo lived around the corner on 44th and, between, you know, almost at the corner of 8th. So we were neighbors, and, you know, that's like began a friendship of, you know, until he died, I guess, something like 10 years. When I hear the word friendship, I'm putting myself in New York State of mind. Does that mean you went out together and partied? You went to... No, no. What did you do as friends together? The one time that we did have a party was when the Cuban writer Severo Sarduiz came to New York with his lover, Francois Ball, I think. He was uh, the publisher of Sale Editions in, in Paris. And Severo worked with him. And then we did go to a, a bar in, it was a hustler's bar in 42nd Street called yeah. the Haymarket on 46th Street. And so that time, you know, I think we went there and, you know, we were like having a good time drinking and, you know, looking at the boys, whatever. I mean, we did party that way there. But mostly like, like that was, was different. It was, uh, I met, I ran into him at the post office uh, in the um, in the supermarket or at the pier on 42nd Street and, you know, and the river. And when he published, he used to publish newspapers and magazines all the time, which usually lasted like one issue. And then they would go under because he didn't have any money. But he always asked me for something. So I would give him a poem or something and published it. And I, I remember I reviewed uh, his, the first book of his that came out during that time. Just a long epic poem. I love the book, and so I guess that sort of cemented the relationship, the friendship. You know, you know. So uh, I used to run into him at the at the porn theaters and Forty Second Street and stuff like that. 
And, uh, you know, and, and at the end, you know, my, my agent told me like, one day, he said, you know, I think that Reynaldo is dying and, you know, I think he'll like to see you and would you like to come? And I said, yes, of course, and I went to see him. So I went to see him. A few days later, he, he killed himself. And, you know. so I As said, you're speaking, and I lived in New York at the time, I'm, and I remember being in Bill Sullivan's apartment on But when you talk about 41st and 42nd and 44th, you know, that was a very different world 30-some years insane, ago. Insane. Uh, It's Lincoln hard to told imagine me, that today. Gail told me, you have to be insane to live here. And I said, well, <laughs> Yeah, but it was inexpensive to live there, wasn't it? Yeah, we were bohemians. We never paid rent. And we're always yeah. a year behind the rent. And the owner of the... the This is O'Donnell, uh, God bless her soul. She would say, okay, well, you know. <laughs> I love the Bohemian's excuse. I know before I moved to New York, I, I would always wait until I got the eviction notice before I paid rent. And when I would, after a year, I would always find another apartment and not pay the last few months of rent. I'm not yeah. proud of that, but that was, that was my modus operandi. Around yeah, I mean, like that. most of the artists I knew back then, most of them were poor, you know, like we... Or they lived in uh, in the Lower East Side, and you know, and tenement buildings, you know, that had been you know invaded by settlers or something. It's it's not like now that you, in order to live in New York, you have to have make money. You know, otherwise, yeah. you know, the days of Bohemians, uh, that's the, those days are over a long time ago. Yeah. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the, the My Fourth Act mastermind groups where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. One thing I'm curious about, you've written these beautiful, sweeping historical novels. What prompted you to want to write those? Well, I had written like, I think, three or four books in which, you know, that they were semi-autobiographical. And I always wrote them in the first person, the I. And then I got tired of that. And I thought, I'm tired of my life. I'm sick of my life. I don't want to write about <laughs> anything I know, you know. And that's when they wrote a book about Manuela Sainz, who's a heroine of Colombian independence. But I admire her a lot. And actually, when Bill first read about her in the beginning of her relationship, he said, I may read this book, and I think maybe someday you'd like to write about her. And I read the, the biography that he wanted me to read. And since then, that have been, you know, like as the years went by, you know, I, I got more obsessed with Manuela. And finally, I decided to, um, to go uh, where she had lived and died. I think it was, I was turning 50 that year. And I called Bill and said, Bill, I'm going, I'm leaving tomorrow for Peru because I want to go to the town where Manuela died. And he said, I mean, that's so wonderful because most people at your age have given up on their dreams and you're still wow. dreaming very, very hard. And so I went and, you know, you know so I drove that. You know, yeah, that's What a beautiful thing of Bill to say. And, uh, yeah, beautiful and sad, you know, like uh, I thought, my God, I'm 50, but I'm having given up. I want to write this thing. I want And so that's, that was the beginning of, and then I brought the one about Cervantes. But by then, you know, I really enjoyed the process of uh, writing 
book about real people, books about real novels about real people. And I love doing research and traveling to the places where they live. And Bill was great. He would do a lot of the research for me. He was an avid reader. So he would go to the library and read everything on Manuel and bring me all these books. Yeah. He said, listen, read this and read this and read this. And this, he, did, he did that with, with uh, Manuela and with Cervantes to a lesser extent, but he, he did that you know, for me always during the, those years. Yes. I, the beautiful thing I would imagine is that at some point the research stops and you make up all sorts of other stuff in a beautiful kind of way, your imagination gets to roam wild again, right? Yeah, yeah. It was it was good. It liberated me from from myself, from you know, like being obsessed with myself and writing about me all the time. And and it was painful. All my all, all my friends had, had died or were dying, and all Manuel died of AIDS. Manuel, Manuel Quick died of AIDS too. And so you know, I just it was really painful. I got and I did Emily Maricones and other things and. And I just wanted to escape in, into the past, someplace far away from my life at that moment, which was unbearably sad. It makes so much sense to me. In Twilight at the Equator, you write about a sister committing suicide. Mm-hmm. And I have a brother who committed suicide. And I'm assuming that's autobiographical, is that correct? No, my sister hasn't committed suicide, no. Interesting. So what prompted you to put that in as a plot twist? Well, it's not so much based on my sister, but on my aunt of mine. She was much younger than my mother, and she lived with us. I don't know, my mother, well, it's a very painful thing. My mother used to mistreat her horribly when, when I was growing up. Um, mostly I think because she was black. She was a half-sister of hers. And and then later on, later in life, she sort of lost her mind. And she's still alive, but and now I'm very old. I don't know, it was such a tragic story, and I felt so guilty that growing up with her, you know, I didn't protect her more because, you know, yeah. my mother was really, uh, you know, she was great in the sense that she sent her to school and she gave her a place to live and all that stuff. But she really, you know, like, treated her as an inferior or something. And I, I, it always haunted me. One of the things that always always intrigues me about you, you talked about being, uh, like many artists, at, at certainly at some point, not having a lot of money. But yes. you've been teaching for decades and in many different institutions. Mm-hmm. Some of the more famous ones that, that our listeners will know is you were a professor at Columbia, you taught at Rutgers, you're distinguished lecturer at City University of New York, where you've been for a while. Uh, And I'd love for you to paint a picture for us. If you think of a moment or two where you go, this is why I love teaching. You've alluded to it already a little earlier, but what do you love about it? Or where you go, this is what I like about it. But also being a teacher in institutions can also have its challenges, right? So what what are moments when it might become frustrating for you? Well, well, Columbia was an associate professor in the MFA for seven years, and they ended up denying me tenure. Yeah. But Columbia was very difficult being there, really. I mean, with the, in the faculty, it was like a snake pit, you know, like I would say that it's a, a den of king cobras, you know, because everybody was so poisonous, and because also these huge egos and whatever. I don't know, I was the first Latin Latino 
ever to teach in the MFA in writing. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, they had never had it except Manuel, but he was not, it was not there full time or anything. He just used to teach now and then whenever he was in the city, but was the first full time professor, Latino professor in that department. And it was a lot to absorb. The rewarding thing were the, finally the students, the students really liked me and I got to work with some students who later have become very well known. And But, but even earlier, it started with uh, teaching at the St. Mark's uh, Church. Mm-hmm. I wrote, you know, I taught uh, translation and poetry or something. And from that time, I still have uh, former students who now have become professional translators or writers or something. And we're still close. You know, we still see each other. We're still friends. So over the years, all the places that I've gone through, I've always made, you know, students who became sort of part of my family, you know. And it's like, you know, and so like, there are a lot of them now, you know. You know, like I always hear from them, oh, I published a book, but I'm writing a book. I don't know, it's very pleasurable. And they always say, oh, you were such a wonderful writer, uh, teacher. You used to say this and that and the other. I don't remember saying anything like that, but it's so <laughs> fun. But, and then, well, as I said, I took them seriously. You know, I mean, I realized yeah. that they, to them, that this meant everything. You know, they were desperate to become writers. And they were paying a lot of money, especially at Columbia, to be there. And they didn't know what was going to happen once they... And so they were desperate to write and to publish. And it was like extremely, you know, almost like a matter of life and death to them. And so, uh, you know, I, I poured myself into it. And I, it, was, it was interesting to to see how I could I could um, help them. I don't know, it was a talent I had that I didn't know that I had. Yeah. I just love what you end with that phrase is, it was a talent I knew I didn't have, and and you clearly have it. And the fact that students felt nurtured by you is powerful. I, when you talked about the Columbia experience, I want to just test something with you. Because Jessica Hagedorn was an early teacher of mine in the 90s, and she was very much, I would say, in the Jaime Manrique vein. She was nurturing. She was generous. Yes. Uh, she celebrated the best in you and helped you be better. Um, I also studied a year later with a really famous queer writer. I won't mention him. And in the class, I was in the class with him with other really famous queer writers. And it was one exercise in what I call star fucking. Ego driven, impressing this person, impressing each other, trying to outdo each other. And I know that can be the underbelly of, I would call it artistic insecurity. And so putting yourself in competition with others well, writers were e- egomaniacs that we write because we're egomaniacs. So that you would think we think that whatever we have to say is important enough to write it down, and, and maybe you have other people. But most writers are, you know, like very self-involved. They just don't, you know, even if they teach, they don't like it, or you know, like they. It's like, uh, but you don't do it for any other reason because writing, even when you teach at a very prestigious university, never pays all that well. Eventually, at one point, you realize. I do this because I, I really enjoy it, but it's very demanding. It's very draining. It takes all from you. You know, when yeah. when I remember going to workshop, it was always was always terrified because I knew that three hours later, when the workshop was over for that day, you know, like I had nothing left. I was like, you know, I had nothing in the tank. I would go home and collapse and stare at the ceiling yeah. because they needed so much and they wanted so much from me. And, and I have to really think about Early it. in our conversation just now, when you spoke about Bill Sullivan, you know, you used the phrase, I'm paraphrasing, but in the end, it's there's just love. There's love. We were neighbors in the village. 
We would sometimes plan to get together, but I also would also just run into you. When I would ask you, how are you doing, Jaime? And there would be a little sigh. And you would say, oh, I'm in love. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard you frequently say that. And so in my mind, I think Jaime is in love with being in love. And he loves being in love with people. Would you talk about that a little bit? Is that just my perception or does that match reality? No, it's true. It's true. You know, it's like, uh, you know, it's like Don Quixote falls in love with this country girl who takes care of pigs. And she, but he thinks she's a, a princess. Princess Dulcinea del Toboso, he makes in his mind, he's a princess, you know, and, and then he devotes himself, his life to, to their service and to, to this, this great uh, woman who is like really like a girl who, uh, you know, the, the idea of love, I think, is more powerful than really often than the than the love object, because when we love, you know, we idealize the other person. Yeah. And I always think, oh, it's perfect, this and that. And the more I talk about him, the more perfect he becomes, you know. But of course, nobody's perfect, you know. Being in love is very difficult. I found it my relationship with Bill was extremely difficult, you know. And as I said, but also, you know, and sometimes I was deeply unhappy, but we had this bond that was, you know, I care about him, he cares cares about me, we care deeply about what we did, artists, and I was, at one point I realized no matter what happens, I'm always going to be with Bill, you know, I'm not going to abandon him, I'm not going to go off and say goodbye, you know, this is over. And I was happy that at the end, that when he died, the, the last minute, right before he died, I was there, you know, like with him. Yeah. And he opened his eyes and he saw me and, and he knew that I had been there all the time, you know. And so I, I was very proud of that, that I didn't, you know, despite everything, I never, you know, abandoned him because I knew that yeah. the importance he had in my life, which was more greater than just romance. He was like a, a mentor, uh, you know, like my first fan, you know, like I was his Best fan, he was my best fan too. As I said that earlier, I think that what writers need is like without praise, without encouragement, we die. You know, we need you. We need somebody who's always there because in the world of uh, arts, of the arts, nobody's is running after you to praise you or to say, "Oh, you're brave, you're wonderful," whatever. It's like most people are like you know, like uh, colleagues can be you know very nasty or something. That world can be very throat or you know but um you know, to have somebody who's always behind you that's the very greatest thing you can do for for a young artist i think now you recently turned 73 you uh you live in this lovely apartment on a choice block in the west village of manhattan you've yes. been there for 30 years you you teach at city college when i look in from the outside i go this is a this is a very sweet and enchanted life. You are celebrated for your work. You, you don't have to do anything to prove yourself to anybody. You're acknowledged for the exquisite writer that you are. If you look to the future, are there desires? Are there things you want to explore you haven't? How do you think about moving forward and what that looks like for you? I don't know, the other day I interviewed uh, Sandra Cisneros, the writer. Uh-huh, sure. and, then, you know, and I said, what would you like to do that you haven't done? And she said, oh, I like to do voiceovers. I want to do a movie. I want to write a piece. And I went to opera. So I said, and he said, and don't you? And I said, no, no. 
no, no way. I don't want to do anything. You know, I think I've done, you know, what I've done and it's plenty. I don't have a desire to, to do like, I want to write one more book and I, and I hope that I, I get around to doing it. And I, this is the, probably the final book, although they've always been saying that for 20 years and I can still, you know, if I'm still alive, <laughs> another one. But no, the, what is it for me to, I don't know, the, the idea of companionship is very important to me. And I wasn't a real, I mean, I'm still I'm kind of in a, well, I mean, I was in love for, for five, six years. And it was recently, and it was, it was still incredibly close. And I love him very much, but I'm no longer in love, you know. And he was much younger, and, you know, he has his own life and whatever. And it took me, it was hard to let go and say, okay, now you're in another continent, you have another wife, I have to let go of him, and we remain, you know, excellent friends. I like the companionship, which I think is the most yeah. important thing, you know, in a relationship that I, that I would like to probably have, us, especially when you grow older, you, you need the people around, you know, you, you need, you know, you, yeah. you cannot, if you're isolated, you start dying. And I'm, I'm sort of used to the idea of like, always having somebody in my life, you know, like, who's there constantly, um, it's like the mirror, in which I seem, it's like the witness of my life, you know, somebody, or somebody knows I'm alive, and he does, you know, like, yeah. if I die tonight, probably he'll find out tomorrow or something. Thank you for celebrating the power of companionship, and and to celebrate it at any age. Oh, yes, yes. Because one of the gifts for me, I left Manhattan, you know, 18 years ago and live in South Florida. And the cliche is that there are lots of old people here and there are lots of young people here, but there are also lots of old people. And people love at every age in Florida. So the, yeah. the notion that at some point it stops, that's out the window where I live. No, I think, that's long I think when we stop loving really dying, you know, that's the moment when we're really dying, you know, so you have to, I mean, at least I have to, you know, have this idea of the, uh, I don't know, when I'm in love, I'm usually happy. And I think happy people are not destructive people. I'm pretty sure that Putin is probably miserable. And that's why he's invading countries and killing people. If he were in love, he wouldn't be doing that, you know? Yeah. And so it's like love makes you nobler and you know, you're more reconciled to life, life with them more benign eyes. And, you know, you feel good about loving somebody and being loved. So it's like, uh, it's the only thing that really lasts finally at the end is love. You know, it could be romantic love or not, or any kind of love, but it's the sustaining force. Based on your journey in life, and the, the many extraordinary things you've, you've done and experienced, Listeners of the podcast are folks who may go, oh, I've always wanted to write something or I always wanted to do this or that, but how we talk ourselves out of it or especially mm -hmm. with writing, it can be, well, everything has already been written. So why I should write something else? Every great love story already exists. Or as a teacher and mentor, if there are listeners who are going, I have an inkling to write but maybe I'm too old to write a book. Jaime started when he was in his 20s. What would you say to them? Well, I said nonsense. Write when you're ready. If sometimes people start writing when they're old and other writers do their work when they're very old or, or some when they're very young, but it's, it's not that it's, there is no time limit. It's like you never retire from writing. You can retire from everything, but not from writing because it's like it's, it's something that, that you that I need to do in order to 
to breathe, you know, like it's like, otherwise I start choking, you know, because I have all these things here, here that I, I know they're there, but I don't know exactly what they are until I write them down. Actually, the best, some of the best students I had were older students, you know, people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, because they were, they were through with all the nonsense of being young and, you know, whatever. And then they, you know, like, so they, they're, okay, I'm going to write. And then they wrote, they wrote books and, and they did it because just they wanted to do it. You know, it's like they had been waiting for a long time to do it. And so they did it then. I end every conversation by asking my guests to, to possibly send our listeners to places where they can learn more about them. In your case, your what you've written is very public. You know, you can in, you can go to many bookstores and your books are actually there. You can certainly get them on Amazon and other bookstores. If, if anybody is listening to go, oh, I want to learn more about Jaime Manrique and what he does, is there any other place where you would like to send them to discover more about you? It depends what they want to discover, you know. <laughs> I guess people, we, you know, when I was young, and, uh, you know, there were the writers I admire and adore, and I wanted to know everything about them. That's true. I'm not that famous that people, you know, want. But I did, you know, I have fans, people who come here and from many countries who write to me and whatever and write beautiful letters. And, you know, if you want to, you don't need to know me to learn more about me, you know, just learn about maybe the things that you need to know about. How, how can you be a better person in the world? How can you? be more loving how can you be kinder how can you be more serious because it's important to be serious in life although i'm always joking but you know like take life seriously and the world in which we live you know i you know it's it's, uh, it's impossible not to suffer when i see like the, the wars all these incredible injustices i'm glad that i that they affect me because you know that also is another sign that you know that i'm not jaded that i yeah, you know that you know that there is uh, still a lot. Life is, is a mystery, as Lorca said, and I think it's a, it's a mystery. Life is extremely mysterious. I, I don't, I never know what's going to happen next. Maybe when I'm, you know, if I'm much older or whatever, I'll say, okay, tomorrow is going to be exactly like today. You know, if I'm in a coma or something. But otherwise, you know, there is always a possibility of anything. You know, like watching a wonderful movie and you think, oh my God, how beautiful, or listening to some music that is really touches you and some book that you know it's like whatever or you meet a person the other day i was walking out of the movie theater and walked out of out of elvis it's the worst movie i've ever seen in my life and, <laughs> and then i couldn't stand it so i walked out and then there was uh, across the street there was um, a man with a sign like this and he said iraq uh, veteran homeless uh, hungry or something like that and I thought, okay, I'm always kind of like, people say, well, don't give money to beggars. But I know that the beggars need, but they need it, you know, otherwise they wouldn't do it. So I, I you know, I gave you know, him a bill. And the reason I looked at him was because I thought, oh, he's really good looking. I mean, it was all selfishness on my part. I thought, what a good looking, you know, soldier, a former soldier. And so I gave him the, the bill and then he looked at me, having, you know, having seen his eyes and he looked at me and he had the most beautiful, Blue eyes, the first thing, so luminous, you know, they were like, you know, astonishingly beautiful. And then he said in Spanish, gracias. And then I thought, wow, you know, if I hadn't stopped for giving that, I would have never, that incredible look that he gave me, which there was so much beauty, so much hope, so something that, you know, touched me very deeply. And he was astonished that, you know, somebody was giving me. 
Thank you on ending on this, this beautiful moment, random moment with a stranger, which is available to us anytime. Anytime, yeah. I thank you for this conversation, Jaime, and uh, goodbye for now. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.